Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, this is Dr. Nadipuram, your infectious disease doctor and researcher, After Dark. Oh, it's an After Dark episode. <laughs> Welcome to Travel Medicine, After Dark. It might make you think we're going to deal with more serious or adult topics, and that's just patently not true. We hate to disappoint you, sweet listeners. But instead, you will get all the same levels of immaturity to which you have grown accustomed, but in a much gentler, softer, evening tone of voice. <laughs> This is mostly to prevent waking up children in the Nadipuram household. Gosh. And also to prevent waking up your children uh, at oh, home, yeah. <laughs> wherever they may be. We're hoping to parlay this into the, uh, the ASMR crowd at some point. This week, we will be wrapping up our series on the origin of antibiotics. And then we'll have a brief layover of journal club goodness before getting to one of the things I look forward to every time we start a new season, which is, of course, the Halloween episode. I, I have a feeling like we bookend the season with like ending on a joyous note and starting on a joyous note for Dr. Josh. So that's that's actually why we, you know, we start the season around the end of September, beginning of October. And then, you know, because that's Halloween, which is the most joyful time of year for Dr. Josh. And we end right around or right before, I should say, Comic-Con, which is, I'd say that that's the second most joyful time for you. It's yeah. true. My birthday is a distant third. <laughs> In part one of our Origin of Antibiotics, we talked about the big natural antibiotics, the earliest guns in our arsenal. In part two, we carried on talking about 
the golden age of pharmaceutical development, the 1950s, and the development of many more synthetic antibiotics commonly in use today. In the current day and age, I thought it might be fun to talk a little bit about how drugs actually get named now. It's been a running gag on this show that I don't think scientists are good at naming things. Or at least not medical scientists. <laughs> we're, we're pretty bad. We, you know, we tend to go with either like chemical names or cogeners. If we don't, as medical scientists or, or biomedical scientists, hook up with some sort of a marketing guru, um, things tend to go either just kind of by numbering, right? Or we just give it like the most, the, the closest name to the molecule that it is. Penicillin erythromycin, all these other things, they were actually just borrowed from the species name or the genus name of the fungus or the bacteria that they came from. And we gave you a whole bunch of fantastic origin stories on the antibiotics that we could find. But how do all the other drugs get named? Let's get into a little bit of what's in a name, the conclusion to the origin of antibiotics. welcome. So for those of you who haven't listened, first of all, right now, stop. Hammer time. Hammer time. Uh, Go on back. Listen to uh, the previous two episodes. Yeah, then come back around. (laughs) Come back around because there's some really awesome stories about how people were denied a Nobel Prize because they were developing antibiotics in Nazi Germany. Hats off to you, Dr. Domek. Amazing other stories about digging through soil samples and... Benjamin Duggar, (laughs) plant physiologist. (laughs) Which, by the way, just watch out for it. I don't care if it takes a couple of weeks or a couple of years. Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist, is going to be the next great hit right up there with Doctor Who. He'll be returning periodically throughout (laughs) this season. With amazing quotes and facts. And celebrate this very little-known but absolutely fantastic scientist, Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. Uh, for those of you wondering <laughs> why I care so much, we've created an inside joke that started last episode. Absolutely, Just yes. Play along. And, and or Google anyway. Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. We'll wait. All right, welcome back. Are you amazed? Your brain's blown? All right, let's continue the episode. <laughs> Naming and production. How do drugs get named now? Every drug has at least three names. That's not a first, middle, and last, because drugs aren't people. But a drug has a chemical name based on the compound structure, a generic or non-proprietary name, that's the drug's official name throughout its lifetime, and a trade name used by the pharmaceutical company for a 17-year period in which it has the exclusive rights to make and sell the drug. Uh, I guess that would be equivalent of saying Xerox was the trade name and has now been kind of become the generic for just making a copy. And if we called it mimicry mechanical machine would be the chemical structure. uh, Yeah, Yeah, and it's kind of neat because there's actually a council that comes up with this, like a group of people that decides what that name ought to be, except for the, the... trade name, which is, you know, that's up to the company. Yeah. So when a drug company first looks for permission to test a new chemical compound, and this is animal testing, we we come up with the name long before it reaches humans. <laughs> Santosh, you've, you've discovered a drug. Ooh. You've taken it to animal testing. Um, 
you're going to submit up to three possible generic names to the U.S. Adopted Names Council, uh, which is not how we name puppies and orphans, <laughs> yeah. although it so, should. So um, I can actually use a really cool – so there's one called uh, Bryn Cytophavir, which is a lipophilic form of the original Cytophavir, which, as we all know, is used to treat resistant adenoviral infections. Bryn Cytophavir was originally – CMX001 started out as an experimental drug. You had this company, you had Shimerex or Chimerex, sorry. You know, they just had it experimentally for a while and they just had to the experimental name, CMX001. Once they got to the animal testing phase and they were ready to bring it to human trials and things like this, now they they had a list of names. They said, okay, this is what we'd like to name. Now, the first part of the name on this generic name can be anything you want. We could call yeah. it Santoshavir or Santoshstatin <laughs> or Santoshium. But you'll notice all of those end differently than they start because the U.S. Adopted Names Council has a list of approved stems that allow therapeutically related drugs to have similar sounding names. So if it's going to fight a virus, it may be Santoshavir. If it's going to treat your cholesterol, it may be Santostatin. If it's going to affect your blood pressure, <laughs> it may be Santoshalol. Uh, specifically, it's for, if it's for beta-adrenergic blockade. So this five-member U.S. Adopted Names Council will select one of the generic names that has been submitted to them. And then they send it up the chain to the World Health Organization. And that's to make sure it isn't too similar to generic names in other countries. For example, Santoshavir may be a virus-fighting drug in the U.S., but over in India, there may be a drug called Santoshavir for hemorrhoids. So not everything gets approved, you know, in every single country kind of simultaneously or gets recognized by the WHO simultaneously because different countries have different pathways for drug approval and use for humans. So... You do have to have some sort of a net, and I guess it starts with the WHO, that reaches out and says, all right, if I market this out as a, you know, heart attack medication, you know, for acute heart attack, is this one going to get messed up or mixed up with, you know, the medicine that's actually supposed to be used to treat restless leg syndrome in Siam? You know, if if this happens then uh, all of a sudden you get a mix-up and you're like, oh my God, you know, get the Santoshavir and, you know, rush it to the person. And then they say, yeah. why? I don't have hemorrhoids. <laughs> uh, no, it's because he's dying. looking at each other in Thailand, just like confused. Wait a minute. I don't understand. You can stop a person from dying from hemorrhoids if they have a heart attack with this medicine? So it's important to make sure that there is similar naming conventions right. around the world now, even along when with there's this, language I have to barriers. say on an even more basic level um, we do have um, CAS numbers CAS numbers which um, conform to a chemical database and you're also going to have a chemical formula that goes along with it aside from anything biomedical you know you're actually classifying the chemical from the standpoint of the molecule itself <laughs> cast me outside how about that so there are some additional guidelines when submitting these names 
<laughs> Although I'm having a lot of fun turning Santosh into drug I, names. I'm not going to stop but you, um, the but we have names, to find a, a good use for Santoshavir eventually. We have to get into the pharmaceutical world. So additional guidelines call for names to be simple to pronounce. So what does that mean? That means there's only Ooh, one way to Joshua say it Myerson. and no more than four syllables. Oh, erythrojoshin the name has to be simple to pronounce. Uh, English. No yeah, more speaking, than four syllables. Because right now, English is kind of the lingua franca of biomedical sciences. <laughs> right. If it's Thai, there's no way we it'll be you, less Thailand. than like Keep 70 listening. syllables. <laughs> the name should reflect the drug's primary characteristics without implying a cure or without applying to a specific part of the anatomy, since many drugs right. are often later found to have other uses. And be distinct from existing generic drug names or trademarks. So it has to reflect the drug's primary characteristics. So if a drug lowers your cholesterol, you can't call it, uh, it Santoshavir because that implies that it is right, something right, exactly. on so anti-infectious. So it has to kind of go along with cholesterol lowering, even if it's not, for instance, a statin. Um, so it's got to choose from the stems that are there originally for cholesterol lowering. The other part, which I absolutely love, so for instance, sildenafil, which um, our listeners may know as the little blue pill or Viagra, they couldn't call that uh, super penisolol or something. <laughs> Although <laughs> they should have the called issue, right? So now you're doing two bad things. One, you're you are pointing to a body site. Or, you know, talking about a, a very particular treatment, you know, specifically for the penis. Um, and, and second of all, you know, you might be saying like with pecoroperol or something, you might be saying that like, oh, I'm actually treating, you know, or curing erectile dysfunction. So, it, it, you know, you're, you're close to kind of like a hyperbole where if the person picks it up, like the, the patient, they're like, oh, if I take this, I'll be completely better, which is not a fair thing to do. Let me put it to you another way, Santosh. Sildenafil was originally discovered, was originally researched as a respiratory drug to help pulmonary hypertension. And only later was it found to have <laughs> this a, uh, quicker effect. pecker upper. But in a well, but side in fact, effect. Josh, I'll tell you. Now, imagine is still used if that had to treat pulmonary hypertension in premature babies. Imagine now if it had been discovered in the opposite order, and then you can see why these rules need to come into play. Imagine if we found the erectile dysfunction treatment first, and then realized, oh yeah, and by the way, it also treats lungs. Yeah, exactly. We had already named it penis mightier. Why are you giving my baby or my grandpa penis mightier? There's nothing wrong with his like, no, 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 it's to help his lungs. You're putting a penis in his lungs. So you can see where confusion can be created if a name is not carefully chosen. So no anatomical references, no insinuations or implications of a cure. And it has to reflect in the name the drug's primary characteristic. Now, the characteristic is easy because you can just use one of those stems. The last requirement is that it has to be distinct or unique from existing generic drug names or trademarks. And that name, that requirement that it be unique is crucial. There are studies that say anywhere from 7,000 to 20,000 people die or are injured each year in the U.S. because of drug confusion. Just simply 
taking Absolutely. the wrong drug, yeah, grabbing the wrong is, thing off the shelf. This is something that you have to avoid at all costs, not just because, you know, as we were kind of joking before, that you could mix up like a hemorrhoid medication with, you know, something life-saving, you know, something that you need in a critical situation. But, you know, side effect profiles might be different. Allergies might come into play where you could really harm someone by giving them the wrong drug. So the naming convention seems to be like overly rigid and kind of crazy, but it's important. Ultimate authority over pharmaceutical trade names in the United States rests with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, oh, as well nice. as to a lesser extent, the Patent and Trademark Office. A trade name should be memorable, but it shouldn't promise efficacy, Ooh. which is why you'll never see an allergy drug called Sneeze Be Gone. Uh, instead, it'll be called Claritin. It implies right. that it will make you more clear, but not completely cure your allergies. So it implies efficiency without guaranteeing a cure. Uh, another great example, Rogaine, was the original name for it was actually Regain. And that was an early suggestion. It was ultimately nixed because it sounded like a guarantee for growing hair. And while the ad people can imply that all they want, the drug makers can Josh, your opinion too, they shouldn't have any ad time at all, any damn way. They're selling their drugs just fine without friggin' ad space. But, um, you know, if, if you have a naming convention that kind of holds to this, that means that, you know, they don't have the chance to convince you to use that drug just because of a name. And this is actually a good hint for all of you guys out there. You know, if by chance you see a supplement which, you know, strays away from these naming conventions, take a look at the fine print because it'll tell you right then and there that this drug or this medication or this supplement has not been approved or proven f to treat absolutely anything. Uh, authorities, actually, and, and very careful people would allow an approved medication to fit that name to that drug. So in order to develop these trade names, drug makers work hand-in-hand -hand with marketing and branding agencies that help them generate unique names. And there's a few linguistic tricks that they'll use, which okay. I thought was really neat and has caused me to read drug bottles with a very different eye. If the developer wants to convey that the drug is powerful or strong, uh, they'll use what are called plosive letters, like P or T or D, to convey power. So think of a drug that's got the letter P or T or D in it. It just kind of explodes <laughs> off your tongue. Propanolol or Diamox. Vim and Vigor. Now, if they're using what are called fricative letters, like X, F, S, or Z, those tend to be used in drugs that are trying to imply speed something that that's so fast sense now. that's actually why there's a ton of x's that show up in See, I drug always names thought that it because was like a all of the drugs want to give you the idea you know that it's because quick work. science fiction writers love to use x's and z's and, and as much as they possibly can because it makes it sound like even more kind of esoteric yeah. and out there and oh my gosh i can hardly believe it type of thing. Yeah. So now think of, you know, what's a, a Z drug? Z pack. 
So it's now you have both a fricative, a Z in there, as well as a plosive or a piece. Now you have a drug that from a marketing standpoint, you're thinking about works fast and strong. <laughs> that's why doctors <laughs> throw a Z-pack at you to just take care of a quick cold. But that's a whole other issue. The FDA's Office of Post-Marketing Drug Risk Assessment puts proposed names through several screenings, including, and I love, I love picturing these tests going on. So let's, let's play a little imagination game, Santos. You tell me what you see. They have healthcare professionals interpret both written and verbal orders to simulate the real-world prescription ordering process. You're talking about people lining up and actually going, all right, okay, you be the pharmacist and I'll be the patient. And I go, right, right, okay, break. And then so patient comes up to the pharmacist and go, I would like a pack, please. And, you know, the pharmacist, you know, goes, did you mean you wanted, like, Z-Mac or, you know, something, something goofy. And, you know, I said, oh, no, what would it be? Or Z-Pakay? Z-Pakay, that's insane. (laughs) Z-Pakay. It's terrible. There's also healthcare professionals interpreting both written and verbal orders. So you might have a doc and nurse role playing saying, give him, you know, 50 cc's of (laughs) somatostatin. So did you mean... Did you mean tomato station? Oh, man, let's go to the tomato station. Suppose it's it's one of these which you actually have to show the drug to someone and see how it rolls off the tongue. You know, so, I mean, just as a kind of a weird, strange example, you don't have people saying symbiote. Always place the accent on the right syllable. In the U.S., generic drug names do oh. not begin with the letters H, J, K, or W. Because those letters do not exist in some of the 130 countries that use U.S. generic named drugs. The drugs we create here go out all over the world, which means they have to be pronounceable even if the person doesn't speak English. It's it's not. That's where you get your Z-Pack. Your Z-Pack. It has to be pronounceable. (laughs) That means there can't be any drugs that start with Josh in them, although we could have Arethor Josh in. Like Yoshishitamol or something. Not even and that would, would never pass the role-playing <laughs> pharmacists. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So once it's made it through all these different rules, it's then reviewed by the World Health Organization and determined <laughs> based on price, effectiveness, uh, as to whether really or not cool. it makes and it onto the WHO like, model you know, list of essential medicines. In the WHO. Um, this is a list, Josh, of if you're out in the field or if you, you know, want to run any kind of healthcare facility, no matter where you are, these are the medications kind of in different tiers that you should have available to you. You're starting up, say, a government or a field clinic. There's certain medications that you need right. to be available to treat all the things you would expect to see. Everyone is going to have some degree of heart disease. Uh, There's certainly going to be probably asthma. There's certainly going to be infections and diarrhea will be one of them. So there's guaranteed to be things that will treat these basic conditions. And this, the 
list of essential medicines published by the WHO is really the guideline for everyone else. And as of 2016, over 155 countries have created national lists of essential medicines based on this World Health Organization list. And this includes countries in both the developed and the developing world. The list has two parts. It's divided into core items and complementary items. The core items are deemed to be the most cost-effective options for key health problems and usable with little additional healthcare resources. So they may not be the gold standard, they may not be the best treatment, but it's going to be the best treatment that you can give for the cost, as well as being in areas where you're dropped on the ground, bare grill style, and have. But they may have other things that go with them. For instance, you know their cost versus how much they're going to benefit someone. You have to talk about stability. Maybe you don't have any refrigeration. Maybe you don't have humidity control. So, perfect example of cost benefit, Santosh. The medicine Tamiflu, which is given for influenza, when given within the first twenty-four to seventy-two hours of a flu starting can decrease the length of time that you're infected with the flu by about two to three days. If you're making a list of cost benefit ratios for, let's say, a five-day course, do you want somebody, are you going to include a medicine that costs $75 a dose for five days if all it's going to do is decrease the length of time by one or two days? No. You want something that's going to either save somebody's life, that's going to decrease the amount of treatment from right. weeks, uh, from months to weeks yeah. or weeks to days. Uh, so it's not, Tamiflu would not make the core list. The complementary items often require additional infrastructure, such as specially trained healthcare providers. That could be radiologists to administer, to administer contrast or cardiologists who are working with nitroprusside or some IV medications. Some medications are actually listed under both core and complementary, depending on at what stage of development the individual country is. So the very first list was published in 1977 and included 212 medications, and it gets updated yeah, every so two I'm years. Looking at the top are actually anti-helminthics. So you have a few medications to treat worms and filaria and schistosoma. Um, so these are worms which you don't see it a lot in the United States, but they're ubiquitous throughout the rest of the world. And then when you get to key access antibiotics, so antibacterials have a, a big list to go with it, um, you want to stick with the, you know, a tight core of what's called beta-lactams. So these are by and large like penicillins and penicillin derivatives. But interestingly, Josh, penicillin itself um, is not quite broad enough to kill, you know, everything you need. And there are issues with things like stability, right? So what you can keep at room temperature um, or what chemicals will stay okay at room temperature, even if you don't have a fridge. So the top of the list is actually ampicillin. And the the penicillin formulations are actually like benzyl penicillin or benzathine benzyl penicillin, which you can give intramuscularly along with um, parenterally or, you know, IV, gentamicin is super, super important. 
And then for orally, you want to have uh, oral amoxicillin available because of the number of different bacterial infections that it can treat. The watch group antibiotics are kind of broader spectrum antibiotics that can kill, you know, the things that we get really scared about, like MRSA and Pseudomonas in intensive care units, but you don't necessarily need them. And then the reserve group is, you know, of last resort. If you absolutely need it, you know, there should be, and these are fourth generation cephalosporins, fifth generation cephalosporins. And these are things that, you know, nothing else will treat this bacterial infection. So you wanted the biggest bang for your buck. You want some anti-worm therapy like albendazole and ivermectin. You want to have amoxicillin. And you want to have an aminoglycoside like gentamicin. That's the kind of core that they came up with. And in fact, Josh, anti-infectives, um, you know, take up one of the biggest lists uh, on on the WHO. But that antibacterial list is absolutely huge. That's some of them. And then going through the others, uh, you know, you want something for pain. You want to have antidotes. You want to have something to rescue someone from anaphylaxis. So epinephrine, you want uh, dexamethasone as a steroid. These are the things we're talking about, you know, stuff that you need to either give quickly to rescue or stuff without which, um, you know, you're not going to be able to save even one person. So that's the type of medications that we're going to see on the core list can't really run even a field clinic without this stuff type of thing yeah so it's your hospital Um, starter kit it's nice to see a lot of them are orals or stuff that you can give subcutaneously or intramuscular so that's that's kind of the quick and dirty on how drugs and drug names are chosen and we focused on just really (laughs) pharmaceuticals because if i start getting into pure bench work biomedical science. I, I don't understand any of it. That's Dr. Santosh's world. And those people are just terrible at naming things. Just God awful. So I'm going to leave us with two little miscellaneous fun drug names that we didn't get to cover in our in our history and that I just really liked oh, sure. because I thought they were very clever. <laughs> Latisse, which sounds like a makeup it was named for lash because it was noted that this drug did oh. cause your eyelashes to grow. And uh, Matisse, who was a French artist known both for his use of color and fluid, and he was a sculptor, but primarily a painter. So he was one of the the post-impressionists and expressionists, okay. Lash and Matisse. And then the other one, uh, Rapamune which is a organ transplant drug used to suppress the immune system so the transplants aren't rejected, was actually named, it was developed based on the product of a flower on Easter Island. And Easter Island in the Polynesian language is Rapa Nui. This is serolimus, by the way, for those of you who are uh, listening or medical professionals and not... uh, familiar with the the American drug name. It has that kind of immune thing built in, but I guess it was also named after a flower. That is quite clever. Yeah. So the, so the immune part is the immune and the Rapa comes from the (laughs) actual name of Easter Island, which is where they found what they developed. Uh, I don't know if it was a plant discovered by Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, (laughs) I'll be happy if even one of our listeners 
just takes a few moments to go do a Wikipedia yeah. dive on Benjamin Duger. And I'm not even going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what you're going to find. Plant physiology really loved it. But I think, Josh, the other pleasure we got out of this was delving into the field of plant physiology and seeing how many cool, eccentric, and brilliant scientists there were in this field. Benjamin Minchi Duggar. It's a good field to have pissed. like a proper old-timey <laughs> scientist name. You stop harassing those plants, <laughs> Benjamin. But Ma, I'm discovering tetracycline. That's it for this week as well as our History of Antibiotics series. Physicians and scientists and pharmaceutical companies because we all kind of need each other. Um, but, you know, we, we'd still love to see the, uh, the third uh, leg of that stool, the pharmaceutical companies become a little kinder and gentler and more generous uh, with their antibiotics. Um, but I want to let everybody know that um, because we're in such dire needs for antibiotics, that pharmacy development and pharmaceutical development is a super hot field. You know, young listeners out there, go into pharmacy, uh, you know, go into you know, uh, biochemical sciences, develop the next wave of drugs and help us kill these little horrible, horrible critters. When you do, be sure that we'll cover it here on Travel Medicine. If you make an awesome discovery, you will hear about it here on Travel Medicine Podcast. (laughs) With all the gravitas and... (laughs) You know it. And, and respect and, and professionalism to that we Benjamin have made a name Dugger, for ourselves reporting in. <laughs> so until next time, guys, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes along with sources for this week's episode. We would love for you to rate and review us. Tell all your friends, your enemies, and strangers on the street. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.